Welcome to Forging Links. Forging Links is the voice of European social democratic activists with an Anglo-Dutch flavour. The podcast is an initiative of a union and the platform aiming to empower political activists by developing their skill sets, sharing their stories and generating social, environmental, economic impact. We're trying to promote the idea of politics with love, solidarity and prosperity. If you want to know more about a union, you can visit our website. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dunn Street and the people from Socially Democratic Podcast who have helped us behind the scene, our producer Mike, and most importantly, you for listening. So, enjoy. Thank you very much. Leanne Shuring, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Excellent. How are you? I'm doing very well. Really excited to be here with you. Um, so we will be discussing you. You are a uh, Staten Lid, which means a kind of, pro- mm-hmm. is it a provincial councillor role, essentially? I think we usually refer to it as member of the provincial parliament. Cool. So. But it is... It is also a depending on whatever your political system, uh, electoral system yeah. is. So you represent the Pavenda, Partij van de Arbeid, mm-hmm. the Dutch Labour Party in the province of Limburg, uh, which is on the yeah. sou- southernmost corner of the Netherlands. Uh, you live in Maastricht, which is, I believe, the state capital as well, or the province capital. Yeah. And uh, you've been a member of, basically, you've been an active party social democrat for about 15 years now yeah since 2008 and this is your second term as a represent elected representative Mm -hmm. today we want to know more about what motivates you politically how's your career developed what your aspirations are and essentially more about your love for the region and your story so maybe tell us a bit about yourself from your side yeah so um I have been a member of the Limburg Parliament since 2019. That wasn't really the plan, to be honest. Uh, before that, I was um, I worked there as an assistant for the representatives at the time. And then I sort of discovered how interesting I thought all these policies areas were that the province is working on. Um, and I also felt a bit more connected just to the province in general, because I moved here in 2007 to go to university and I planned to stay here for about three years but 15 years later i'm still here um we actually bought a house here a few years ago so i also plan on staying for quite a bit longer um and so that uh yeah changed things quite a bit and next to that i also work um for another organization that is a little bit loosely connected to the the labor dutch labor party so it definitely started out very small and now it's pretty much what I do full-time. So that's very interesting. Oh, that's really cool. So you studied there, you expected to kind of uh, move back or do something else, and then you, you kind of stayed. You joined, the mm-hmm. La- you joined the Labour Party around the time that you moved, or is it, uh, are there any relations to that? I mean, it was a couple of months after, um, and it, hadn't, it didn't really have anything to do with me moving here. I think it had more to do with the fact that you know I was 18 at the time you were sort of growing up and trying to figure out what it meant to be an adult and everything that comes with it and I was really frustrated at the time because the um, Dutch elections actually came earlier than planned because the cabinet fell earlier on and so the general elections happened just before my 18th birthday and I was really pissed off about that and then a little bit later I think I read it in a book somewhere where it said, if you really want to sort of have a bit of influence, you should join a political party. So I thought that was a very good alternative to uh, to voting. And uh, I just basically compared all of them and uh, picked the one that I liked best at the time and still do nowadays. It was a good choice. <laughs> and I mean, but it, but it didn't really have anything to do with me starting university or, or moving here. And then you you wanted to be politically active. How how was the early like activism? Because it's the impression I get, especially with more you know parties that have been around for a while, is that there's some uh, archaic structures 
uh, you have people who've been there for 30 years and they're just used to having meetings as you know kind of meeting their pals how was your how how did you manage to overcome those early days i um at the same time as i joined the the main party i also jo- joined their youth organization the JS Jonge Socialisten and they had a local chapter and i think the first activity i went to was one of theirs and honestly that was just I mean, I had a really good time. There were nice people. We hung out afterwards for a bit, went out for a drink. And that's sort of how I started going to more activities and also getting to know some people and then helping organize some of their activities. And then later I became a board member of the local chapter here. And then through that board, I was connected to the local board of the Labour Party and the provincial board as well. And So then I very slowly started to get to know more and more of these people that were active. And I sort of slowly grew my way into it, basically. Yeah. And now your your role, in terms of your job, did you always expect to be doing this kind of role? Um, We'll talk about it a bit more detail later on. But growing, you know, you're now really an elected politician. Is that something you envisioned for yourself, you know, growing up? Is that something you wanted no, to do? What, what 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 were those dreams like? And for a very long time, um, when I was still in school, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. But then in university, I thought I really wanted to work for the European Union, and I actually also chose my masters in European Union law. Um, but I sort of came back from that idea because it is really interesting subject matter. But I also discovered that I really like um, the sort of local level when it's about policy and government because it makes things a lot more concrete. Um, It's closer to where it happens um, and that I actually like that a lot more. And so after university, I didn't really know what to do. I was working in a call center for a couple of years and then the provincial Labour Party, um, they had a job opening for a um, for, yeah for an employee to help on uh, policy matters and organizational stuff, and so I applied for that, and that's sort of how I um, rolled into the active side of politics. And once I saw that for a couple of years, I realized how interested it was and how nice it would be to actually do it myself as well, and that's why I applied to be a candidate then. But it was definitely more. Of, yeah, it felt a little bit like a coincidence almost, I would say. So, so yeah. your you start you your first elected position was on the provincial level. You, of course, you've been active on many yeah. levels on the local and regional or the city level. But how was that as it in terms of a leap of in policy? Was it because you'd you'd come from outside the region, you'd been living there for a couple of years, and then suddenly you're on a whole different locality to to what you are. You know, maybe you know the the region, but you know, representing a city can be very different to representing more a whole region. Uh, there's much, Limburg is known to be much more rural than than other parts of of of, of the Netherlands. So it's a it's a very sort of stretched out province. So it's it's relatively narrow, but if you go from south to north, like it takes quite a long time to get there. Um, but because I was already working on the provincial level since 2015, I had sort of four years of seeing how this works and going to all these different places to really get a feel for it. Um, and so in that sense, I did have a good idea of what it would entail and what it would be like. Um, there was a bigger difference than I expected, though, between being sort of behind the scenes and actually um, being a representative myself. It was was yeah the gap was larger than I thought it would be, um, but instead of like getting to know the rest of the province and how this this works, I had quite a good idea I would say before I. Uh, and you're still talking about the 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 difference of being you know behind the scene. Is it accountability that's the difference? Is it the campaigning that is the difference? What what really touches you in terms of on a personal level for you the difference? I, I think accountability is part of it. I think it's also the responsibility that is that is connected to that. Because if you're working behind the scenes, you see all the processes, you can uh, offer up ideas, you can help in execution of certain plans, but you're never the one that's responsible and therefore also accountable for the decisions that are made. And I remember my first um, speech in Parliament, it was about um, 
goat farming. Um, and before I knew it, like I had people calling me, like business owners or people that were living next to a goat farm that had all these concerns. And um, so that that really sort of drove this point home. Like, okay, I am the one that has to vote on this. Like, this is like it's a much bigger responsibility uh, and a much bigger feeling of responsibility than I than I expected before. I and do you think the party was well equipped at preparing you for that? In terms of because sometimes you're on the list. And suddenly an election, mm-hmm. you know, in the Netherlands, you have a list and your whatever your number is on the list, it could be such that you get m- many more seats than expected. How did that work for you? Did you feel prepared? Did you feel like the party gave you enough support now that you transitioned from I, being behind think, the scene to the front? I think as much as they could, they did. Um, because on the provincial level, like I was with the same group of people for four years. I had already done all the writing sides of it. We had trainings and like debating and speech, uh, giving speeches. So I really feel like they prepared us to the point that it's possible. But then, of course, um, it's always different from actually being there. And, you know, practice doesn't feel the same yeah. as doing it for real. So I mean, how, do, how, does, how does then that compare? How does then that get, compare with if somebody didn't get the, you know, if for you, if you didn't get those four extra years, you know, working behind the scenes. Do you think that transition would have been much more challenging or what would have been the challenges there? I think so. I think because I think if you don't have it, I can imagine that it's much more overwhelming. Starting from very little things, like I already knew my way in the building very well. I already knew all the IT systems that we were supposed to use. I already knew all the staff members that are working there. I already knew all the other members of parliament from different parties because I worked with them before. Um, so all these things, they are they're just little things. But I think if all of that is new at the same time, I can imagine that it can be quite overwhelming for people. And it takes quite a long while to find your way around everything and knowing where you have to be. And uh, yeah. And then, of course, Maastricht uh, and Limburg border Germany and Belgium. and the European Union, as you mentioned, is of course one of the founding states is the Netherlands and Belgium. Tell us more about that historic relationship because I believe there is a very special status in terms of Maastricht or Limburg and uh, how that developed. I mean, Maastricht, of course, like the building where we have our provincial meetings is where they signed the treaty on the European Union. So every time when we go from our office to like the uh, meeting hall, we pass the official copy of the treaty and like the monument for that so it's always sort of top of mind because of that as well and then of course the like the border aspect it's it's really difficult to miss because for most of the province the river the mass is the border and so that means i live like 200 meters from the border it's really right there but in order to cross it you have to go to the next bridge so it's a little bit further away um but it doesn't sometimes it doesn't even feel like a border like the especially the historical houses like they look the same um the dialect the local dialect is the same um so you can tell it by like the different license plates on cars and and the road sometimes changes a little bit but um it is yeah i think it's such a regular part of everyone's day to cross the border all the time that it it has become a very common thing um and also sort of for me at least difficult to imagine what that would be like back in the day when of course it was much more prominent um but then and that, it was also very strange for example during the covid, COVID lockdowns yeah, when yeah. Suddenly how was that borders were very strong again and um i mean especially the smaller roads they had these like giant roadblocks so you couldn't pass them and you had to go through the highway and you had a special permission slip that you were allowed to cross the border that your employer had to sign, for example. And uh, even the footpath has like these big gates on it so you couldn't cross. It was really, it was a very physical thing suddenly, whereas usually it's not at all. Did it feel more like a, a, a something that, like a, a military policing type of a security response or was did it feel like a... A health response like uh, what what impression did you did you your your neighbors have from it 
I mean, I think the idea was, of course, based on the the health and safety policy. So I understand why they did it, why they wanted to restrict movement. Um, but because the physical manifestations of that was in the form of like gates and walls and big concrete blocks, it, it felt like it was almost like the safety policy thing. Um, and sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like be, the way things are structured now, there are certain people that are really depending on stores on the other side of the border, for example, and now they weren't able to to go there. There's a lot of people that have family members on the other side of the border that they weren't allowed to visit. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think from a lot of people that was a very difficult time and it was also sort of a celebration when it opened up again. and. Uh, <laughs> They had all these things that you could go to the border, order your groceries, and somebody would go to the supermarket and bring them back and stuff like this. And it's. Uh... But the people adjusted to that, right? So, but moving. I mean, there wasn't really a choice, right? You had to. But then they had to, in the sense that. But then, um, do you feel that this is something of a experiment to remind people of the importance of, you know internationalism open borders you know cooperation um i would say at least regionally definitely it 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 was a good reminder of that and um i i mean people definitely want to keep these borders open of course i think there's also a lot of people um especially if their family is traditionally from this area they sort of consider this one region and not necessarily something that would span the entire continent or something um so in that i mean there is a relationship between the the people who used to mine coal in limburg and maastricht and they would travel around the mines this is probably pre-world war one and yeah, then so when the you know when borders started popping up and nationalism started to grow it had quite a disruptive effect yeah so in Ma in Maastricht there were never any mines, right? So that's more the eastern part of Limburg, so near Heerle, for example. Um, and they are right on the border with with Aachen on the other side. In that area had a lot of coal mining for a long time. And sometimes people would work in one spot and stay there. But I think especially earlier on, it was much more common to sort of go around, see where there was work, and then you would work there. And sometimes that was in Germany, sometimes it was in the Netherlands. Um, and I think this you would see this in, in more um, fields, for example, factory workers. I remember the first factory in Maastricht, they would get most of their employees from uh, the area around Liège because there were already some factories there. So there were more people who knew how to work these machines and then they would come to Maastricht to work here. Um, so it was much more common to cross the border, to look for work. Um, and also because for a long time, these borders didn't really exist. Like for a while, um, most of Limburg actually wanted to join Belgium when they became independent. Limburg as a whole for a while was both German and Dutch in the 19th century. Um, so these national borders weren't as strict and definitely weren't really as enforced as they were later on. I think World War One was a big turning point in that because, of course, we remained neutral. But right across the, Bel the border in Belgium, there was um, a lot of destruction, basically, a lot of fighting. Um, so I think this was a good, very good reminder for the first time that people really had to look towards the rest of the Netherlands and also were um, sort of lucky that they were on this side of the border. Um, but it's been a bit of a mixed bag. There's still people that uh, in Maastricht that would prefer to be Belgium today, and uh, uh, or at least feel closer to the regional culture that is also across the border in Belgium than to the rest of the Netherlands. And then you're in your second term as uh, the provincial councillor or the provincial representative. You recently had a coalition with the Farmers' Party, 3B, mm -hmm. uh, the Liberals, PVD, the Christian Democrats, CDA, and the Socialists from SP. Um, and of course, you guys are from uh, Paven the Could you tell us just roughly how these coalitions come about? Because a lot of places in Europe don't actually have a very constructive concept of working with people that during the campaign, 
you're probably campaigning against them and you're trying to convince people to vote for you and not vote for them and there's all these campaigning tactics and then suddenly you're turning around and you're in power and now you have to you know be friends of course there's a civil aspect to it but there's a personal aspect to it but there is this is it as you know tell us more about the process the culture behind it because for example where sorry so where where i'm from and when i was a a counselor in london we just went outright there was no very little idea of of coalition building Uh, we just you win the whole government and you get to do mostly what you want it's very rare that your party will get voted down unless there's a rebellion within the party but the netherlands uh people like that that they have this coalition it, building. it is a very different system um so the elections were last march and here i think we had 27 parties on the ballot and it's a very direct representation so they divide the amount of votes that were cast by the amount of seats that are available and if you have enough votes for one seat you are elected to parliament as a party so i think at this point we have 11 parties in the provincial parliament and um, there are 47 seats and that means that you have to then talk to everyone else to see if you can find a majority because there's never one party that has the majority and so this time the BBB, the um, it translates to like the farmer civilian movement. Um, they were the biggest party in the end. They had the most seats, but they were not even halfway up to a majority. So they had to find other parties to uh, to work with. Um, and then basically you have a lot of meetings and a lot of different phone calls about all the different topics, and you see if you can come to an agreement that everyone is uh, is okay with. And of course, in negotiations, there's always some things where you're very happy with and some things that you have to um, give in a little. Um, and then you have to think like, is this too much? Is this still acceptable for us and our voters? Or do we have to go back and talk about this again? So this it can be quite a long process. And the more parties you need to find this majority, then um, yeah, the more complicated it gets, of course. And I think this is changing a little bit in the Netherlands. You would see a lot of coalition governments also on the local level with maybe three parties. But nowadays, because there's so many more, it's often four, five, six, seven, maybe even. Um, and that, of course, creates a whole new dynamic. Um, so it always takes a while. We were the first province in the Netherlands to reach an agreement with five parties. Um, and yeah, as you said, they go from all across the spectrum from the sort of more center right liberals to the socialist party and a lot of things that are uh, in between and um we're just yeah they just started up before the summer so um we're finally ready to go i would say and see if we can actually uh in your, in your, make the changes that in your experience does it that. does it flow more from a personal connection and you've seen like where there is personal connections these these negotiations uh move forwards in a more constructive manner or is it the clearer the party message during the campaign is what leads where where's the balance there like how have you experienced it how have you seen that develop i think there is a combination of both because of course um it is about the content uh, about the of the agreement, what you're talking about. But in the end, you also have to reach an agreement and trust that all the other people are also going to uphold the agreement. So there is definitely a level of personal connection. And I think it's a lot easier to talk about the uh, difficult topics if you feel that the other people that are at the table also are... They're in good faith, trying to find the best solution, might disagree with you, but still in the end want what's best for the provincial government or the province as a whole. Um, and I think if you if you have a feeling that somebody is there just to have personal gain or that somebody is trying to trick you, you would never sign such an agreement with them, of course, because you need to know in the end that you can work together. 
Um, so personal relationships and, and trusting the other people, I think that's always a big part of negotiations and, and working together in general. I mean, that's really interesting because when you look at the public's trust in government, there are some saying that is waning and people have less trust in government. And then you're faced with, with, with an issue whereby you're a whole nother level of trust where you need to trust that they will actually govern and you need them to govern in the way you agree. How, how do you balance that? Because, you know, it's like the public doesn't trust you and now you're going in knowing the public doesn't trust these people and you have to find ways to trust them. I think it, it is definitely an issue that people have less trust in government. I think in the Netherlands, trust in institutions is still relatively high compared to a lot of other countries. Um, we don't have any obligation to vote, but there's still relatively high turnouts, especially for national elections. And I think you can also see that this that it is working somehow. So for example, the party that is the largest party now, the BBB, it's a new party that was also founded because people were unhappy with how things were going. So instead of going around the system, they basically did exactly how what the system is made for. They founded their own party, they joined the elections, and then so many people agree with them that they actually won um, with a much bigger margin than anyone expected. Um, so that is then sort of how they, how people tell that they want things to be different and that they want things to change. And so then you start having conversations about that. And on some points, it might mean that you are on complete opposite sides of the spectrum. But then on the other side, maybe you're very close or you at least have the same starting point or the same values that are underneath that. And that is, yeah, you sort of move around each other carefully trying to see where you do have these connections, where you don't, where you have to agree to disagree and just accept that uh, from each other. and. But there is, of course, also a limit to that. There are also certain things that you cannot step over and that you say, like, OK, if you want to do this, we're not going to join into this uh, this conversation. You will have to do it uh, in another way or even preferably, like, if you drop that point, then we can continue. So is it more? But yeah, these are sensitive topics, which is why they're always yeah. held in secret. Um, <laughs> and you try to move away as far as possible from everyone else to uh, to do this. Which is, uh, yeah, you're trying to build trust, but you need you need to have trust that the information you do share is constructive enough, but not public enough that you can be immediately scrutinized without the end result. Because, of course, negotiations are lengthy. Um, on a personal level, you're, you're currently working in Banning for, for, for <laughs> Vereiniging, which is uh, kind of like a jobs uh, union or association, or how does that... Uh, Vereniging is the Dutch word for association. Okay. Yeah. So it's a job so association? association or? Sorry? So banning, what's the, that's related to jobs, employment, work? No, no, not at all, actually. Uh, Willem Banning oh, is the guy that it's bad. named after. And he was, um, he founded the organization originally under a different name over a hundred years ago. And he was a board member of the first Social Democratic Party of the Netherlands, and later also one of the people that started the phase of the attic for the Labour Party. And he was also a theologian and a professor um, and quite active in the Dutch Reformed Church as well. And he founded an organization based on um, a Quaker organization that he found in the UK, actually, called the Woodbrookers. And they started to organize a lot of different activities where you could basically talk to other people about these sort of deeper questions um, and also learn more about different policies or, or techniques. And the organization always continued, basically, and now they sort of focus on the crossroads between religious uh, religion and politics, especially social democratic policies. And yeah, so they organize different activities around that. That's interesting because before you used to be the commercial manager of a Protestant church. And yeah. so I can see this like overlap within you as a person, within your role uh, as, mm -hmm. a, you know, essentially a, a Christian and a social Democrat or a Christian social Democrat, depending on how you, you want to look at it. 
Tell us more about yeah, that that's overlap how I, for you. How I found this because, sorry, what? Yeah, just tell me more about that overlap, with, you know, within yourself and within your role. So I, um, I always grew up Christian. Um, my parents were always active in the church. I sort of stopped for a while uh, when I was uh, in university, but uh, found my way back basically. And at one point they were looking for volunteers because it's I'm, the church I go to now is also an historical monument. So they open it up for people that want to visit it from time to time. And I actually um, told them that I was available to help with that. But then they told me they were actually looking for uh, somebody to work with them on uh, different events that were hosted there as well. And to do um, everything surrounding that. So they called that the commercial manager uh, position. And that's how I started there. And next to that, I worked then for the political party. So I did it both, but in two different positions for a while. And I actually, at that point, did not know that the bonding training existed. And I found out about it somewhere last year. And then I realized like this, it's quite a specific niche, but it's almost precisely my niche. So I actually went to the website to sign up to join as a member. And then I saw that they had this job opening and I thought that would be really fascinating. So I applied and uh, got accepted there as well. So I started there last September. I've been there for about a year now. Um, so yeah, also again, a bit of a coincidence, but a very happy one, I would say. Because yeah, for me, it feels like a very logical connection, but I don't think there are a lot of people who feel this way, so. And then uh, of course the, the Dutch Labour Party was is, is not, was not organically set up there was it was a merger of several different movements um and what i mean by organic is it wasn't it wasn't set up on its own it was set up because organizations came together and one of them a lot of people um, people sometimes overlook was was essentially uh, the christian social democratic movement came together how does that how does that how is that relevant today when we're looking at the close connection, for example, with, with the Green Party, so Groen Links, Pivenda, are now going to be sharing a list. Um, mm -hmm. Both parties, I would say, are, come from a very secular angle. They are a-religious. A uh, the members... No, I would disagree. Tell me. I would disagree tell me, with that. Tell me. Because um, both Groen Links and the PvdA came from a merger of different parties. And in both of these mergers, both the parties that created GroenLinks and the parties that created the PVDA, a Christian party was one of the parties that merged into them. Also, GroenLinks um, was also founded by, among others, a Christian political party. And there's quite a long tradition of Christian socialism. Um, and of course, there's also branches of socialism that are very anti-religion and there are branches of christianity that are very anti-socialism but there has been a, a combination of this since since the beginning i would say almost and then today today how do, how do you feel that connection is waning or strengthening and if and if such what do you want to do about it or do you want to do something I mean, about it <laughs> The form of it is changing, of course, but I think that also has to do with the fact that Dutch society as a whole has become really secularized and um, not very religious in general. I think also in Dutch culture, it's not very common to talk a lot about your religion. I think it's very much considered a personal thing that you do in your own church, in your own home, but not something that you talk a lot about in public debate, for example. So. In that sense, it's a little invisible, maybe sometimes. But I think the ideas behind it and the, the the content of it, so to say, is still very much alive and very easy to point out. And does it does it for you? Does kind of Christian socialist does it come from a benevolence angle, or does it become from an institutional angle? What might be what I mean by that? Does it is does it flow because? it's a good thing to do good you know it, it it's a part of your faith to do good or is it mm -hmm. from an institutional point of view it, which is the church does good or us as christians do good so well for you on if a personal a, level say, it's, 
I think it's even different from that. I would say that if you look at the, the values behind it, so for example, the idea that everyone is of equal value is very strong in Christianity, it's very strong in socialism. Justice, the value of fighting for peace, the idea of having responsibility for your community, um, contributing but not focusing on personal material possessions, but on something that's more important than that. Um, taking care of each other, looking after the poor, the sick, the homeless. Um, they're all very concrete uh, assignments, almost, I would say, in Christianity as well. Um, so even on just how you see the world and your place in it seems very compatible to me. Um, even the idea of uh, sort of love and acceptance over judgment which is a big part at least in progressive christianity i would say um so yeah do for you, me it seems very logical almost to do you think the, to. in terms of representation within the pavendal within the labor party do you think there is good enough influence or representation at this moment of christian social values Um, I, I find that a difficult question, mm -hmm. to be honest, because it, it determines really, it depends on what you see as the values. I think that there is an issue with just a lot of people sort of not knowing a lot about religion in general, I would say, starting from our generation and younger. Um, so people also don't really see the value of religion sometimes or religious institutions, which is sometimes a bit difficult for me. Um, but I think that the values that I find important were in the end also the values why I chose this political party. And I think they're still very well represented. So that's a values in a, in a broader sense, but is there a yeah. specific group or a, a, a meeting as such that you feel that you're able to collectivize and bring those ideas of social Christianity and give it as an input into the party in terms of a structure, in terms of the party itself, in terms of values, the, the way we write our manifestos for elections, the election process. Is that, does that mechanism exist for you to have that input and for others who share Christian social values? Um. I would say it's not institutionalized, but I also don't think it has to be. And then, because in the end, like I don't need the PVDA to be a Christian party. I need them to do things that, in the end, um, create change in the world in the way that I would like to see. And what I would like to see is also inspired by my faith. But um, I don't need to have a very outspoken Christian politician in order to make that happen okay well i mean we could really go on uh, about this cross-section yeah, because it's a very challenging one for a lot of people i mean some people have split from the labor party you know in the past uh for the reason of they want their particular faith to be more represented in a direct manner and you know that there's a legit there are legitimate reasons for that because you know you want in democracy you want better representation more specific representation but then i also think it's a responsibility of a party to be more open to welcoming those voices and those critiques mm -hmm. and such and i just feel like if it was more available in an institutionalized way it could have a much more positive impact on the party because then you know those voices are always going to be there to, to remind us of, of, of the differences that we share and the values that we I have mean, overlap it, for us. It, it could have. Um, I think one of the difficulties, and that's also why, for example, I never chose to join an explicit Christian political party, is that within Christianity, there are, of course, a lot of different ideas and different churches and different thoughts. And so if you have an organization or an institution that is explicitly Christian, there's often also a lot more conservative voices in there um, that are quite strong. And for me, um, I would say 
I am almost more radical and progressive because of how I interpret my faith. And so for me, it also feels nice to not have these more conservative voices uh, around a lot of these ethical issues. And I think especially within Dutch culture um, and the way it has always been since I was growing up, I don't really miss this more structural part. But this is one of the things that sometimes the, the Banning tries to do when there are policies that are explicitly also about religious issues, that they um, write some input, for example, or uh, organize something around that. Yeah. So just on a, you recently went on vacation in France and you had a breakdown. Could you, uh, I mean, it was an interesting story because it's, uh, we're talking about yeah, overlaps I mean, um, of, of region, Europe. And one of the benefits of the European Union has been, you know, you can travel anywhere really quickly and freely apart from of course yeah. uh, more remote parts of, of or islands but nevertheless i mean we didn't go to a very remote part in a very long um dutch tradition we went uh, camping in france we went to uh, to normandy which is i mean it's a good area i think to visit at least once and um we were there by cars so we had all our camping gear in the back and when we were driving home halfway through um our motor the the car got overheated and we had to stop and we had to then figure out how this works in another country and um, we found out that if you if your car breaks down next to the highway in france you have to call the emergency number so we had to call 112 and then when we had somebody on the phone they only spoke french um so that was a good chance to practice my french because it's not that good but we did manage to make clear where we are and that we needed somebody to come pick us up. And then um, the, they had a contract with a uh, garage owner who came and picked us up with a car and brought us to his garage. And then we actually had to go home by train. Um, <laughs> so that was a bit of an extended adventure. We had to spend an extra night in uh, Lille, which was actually also very nice because I had never been there before, even though it's it's honestly pretty close to where we live, relatively speaking. Um, and the interesting part there is that the northern part of France and sort of the Walloon region of Belgium all the way up to Maastricht sort of feels like if you look at the architecture and the landscape, it's really similar. So you could actually tell like, oh, we aren't that far away. I think it was like 300 kilometers or something. So it's not that close either. But it was definitely this feel of like, oh, there is a cultural connection. But because of the systems and the institutions and the borders, um there's still quite a lot of hurdles to then jump over to uh to make it home but we had a good train connection it took like four hours the next day before we were here and then two weeks ago we could pick the car back up so that was nice it's here again it's it's working <laughs> <laughs> that's cool so um do you uh just to wrap things up uh, really appreciate all this time you spent with us but i just wanted to know more about some of the knowledge or exposure you get you know, have you been reading, you know, uh, a book lately about uh, in politics generally or some books you would you, yeah. you've recently come across? I um I would say definitely reading is probably one of the main ways that I get these new ideas. And the, the last book I read while on vacation was um, a book. It's it's written in English, but I read the Dutch version. It's called in English. It's called The Tyranny of Merit by uh, Michael J. Sandel. And it's really about how this idea of a meritocracy and giving people positions based on, um, well, on, on merit it can actually be very problematic as well. And that um, it focuses a lot on the equality of opportunity, but not necessarily on the equality of the outcome in the end. And that this creates this idea that people who do rise to the top through that system have a feeling that it's because of what they did and that they did it by themselves instead of by this whole system and culture that has supported them and that the people who do not rise to the top um sort of are made to feel like it's their fault as well that they lost this societal game um even though there are so many other factors that play into that and he also writes a lot about like american universities which is not really applicable i would say to the situation here 
but yeah, I, I think it was a very interesting book. You, you mentioned America, but like from a U- European side, do you think that is also relevant in the sense that, you know, we, when you look at different parts of Europe, France uh, being an example where there is a lot of challenges about how people get to where they get to, and there's a denial of or that there are inst- institutional influences. No, I think it's definitely a more general thing. What I meant is that he specifically talks about, for example, American universities and their application processes and how only children from rich families basically end up at the top universities. But I think the idea that that you got where you are in life because of you worked very hard and because of your own values and, and um, I think is very prominent. I think there's quite a lot of people also in the Netherlands that if they're very well off, they would say, oh, but that's because I worked very hard for mm. it. But they never mentioned that they also grew up in a family that supported them or that they had um, a connection through family friends that might help them to get their first job or, you know, like all these other little things that can make this huge difference in the end um, that are depending on much more than just yourself it's depending on the network that you have the family that you have the society and the chances that it gave you um and then looking back on it it's very easy to say like oh no i put so much effort into it and i was really smart about making decisions and then um anything else any other sources that you want to mention yeah, there's actually uh, quite a few. I mean, for me, reading, it sort of goes up and down. But if I look at the past year, um, I read two books, actually, by a British author, George Monbiot, or Monbiot, I never really know how to pronounce his last name. But um, the first one I read, it's called Out of the Wreckage. And it's about, um, I think it's called, the subtitle is like a new politics in times of crisis. He wrote it. I think just after Brexit or when it happened in the UK. But this was really a book that really got me fired up again about like finding like leftist policies and a new story to tell in in politics. And I think what's really nice at the beginning, he lists a set of principles. And immediately when I read that, I was very excited because I think there is this idea and I don't know if this is everywhere, but at least in the Netherlands, it is said very often that the political left doesn't really have a story anymore and it needs to sort of soul search for its uh, identity and the things that we have to tell people in order to sort of create this this movement again and i think this really points out like we already have a really good story and we already know the values that we want to promote we just have to think about how to do that today and keep sort of retranslating that to new new context um and the second book by him that i read is uh it's about agriculture because in the provincial politics i work a lot on agricultural policies as well and it's called regenesis and it's really about completely rethinking like the global food system and agriculture um and i'm still chewing on it a little bit i don't know if i agree with him completely but it's really thinking about a completely different system and how to sort of overhaul it completely. Um, It's always difficult, I would say, because I think part of being a social democrat is that you sort of realize that you are not starting from scratch, right? We already have a system and we sort of take slow steps to make it better. Um, And this is definitely a bit more radical than that. It's really, uh, but that makes it very interesting. I mean, that's uh, that's always been the challenge between, you know, I mean, in the Netherlands, we have the Socialist Party and we have the Labour Party. I mean, they, you can argue that they both share exactly the same values, but then maybe in the implementation, one wants much more, you know, in terms of the economic system and social and cultural system, There, that's where the differences are. And, but then you see that you know, silver lining in the Netherlands where there's this coalition not and compromising is not seen as a negative word, but more as a constructive uh, way of doing politics. And I think sort of going back on, on what we talked about earlier, that um, the PvdA is a merger of different parties. This, this, of course, happened just after World War II. And it really was this idea like we have to 
sort of let go of smaller differences and we really have to force this super broad coalition of everyone that is willing to say like okay we want to rebuild a society that is very democratic that is uh trying to sort of go past the uh, the war that just happened and really work on uh, peace in the decades to come and i think that's a very nice sort of parallel with this new combination with honlings that we are making today um like this idea of like we know that there are differences but the challenges that we are facing are so big that we well we have bigger fish to fry and we agree on that so let's work together and uh really try to to force some bigger changes because of that and yeah, it's going to be an exciting few months to see if we're going to be able to make that happen. This is, you know, thank you very much for everything you've you've said. Really appreciate your time. Um, I wish you all the best. Uh, I think you 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 make a strong case for your passion for your your region, your the province, and you know, being a representative in politics. Um, any final words? Any any anything you wish? to 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 keep keep us alive and aware of um i mean not really i really enjoyed it today i'm very honored to uh to be the guest here today and to uh to talk about these things it's always nice to have a little bit of more time to to go more into depth uh, about these things um yeah i think that's it that's honestly. wonderful yeah i appreciate <laughs> it well i hope you have a lovely day and uh I hope uh, I hope all your hard work pays off in politics. It doesn't always, and uh, it's all about staying patient and you know fighting it through. And I hope the coalition brings fruits that that make the region and your constituents' uh, lives better. We're gonna do our best. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. Take care.